Good morning, crowd family. I'm so glad you can join us today. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're now in chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 is today's text. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 is today's text. We're now in part 5 of our series, Undivided. Now, before we dive into the text, I want to do a quick review from last week's text. That's chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. And in verse 26, Paul says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, nor many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. So Paul tells them, God in his wisdom had chosen not to call many from among the intelligent, the influential, the affluential, the powerful, or nobility in the city of Corinth. And Paul's point is that the things which elevate people in the world, such as knowledge and influence and affluence and rank, are not the things which motivate God to call people to salvation. Now, now Paul makes it very clear that God does, does call some from the upper class. And, and Paul didn't say, not any of you. Rather, he said, not many of you. So God called, and we know this, right? God called Sothenes and Crispus and Erastus Gaius and uh, Chloe, who were from the upper class. But the vast majority of the Christians at Corinth were common, ordinary people. And you see, Paul's trying to show that God can use all sorts of people, not just uh, the intellectuals, and that God chooses. It's his choice to work his wonders through people who are, from a human viewpoint, uh, the most unpromising. Now remember in verses 27 and 28, verses 27 and 28, Paul tells us that God chooses the foolish, the feeble, the forsaken, the failures, and the forbidden. And then in verse 29, uh, Paul writes, so that no one may boast before him. And friends, listen, God won't tolerate human pride. And so what he does, he chooses people who will have nothing to brag about. And I want to remind you that none of us, none of us have any reason to boast before God. Okay? He has not chosen us based on our, on our abilities, our worth, our merit. He has chosen us because He is gracious and He is long-suffering. Can I get an amen for that? And then in verse 30, verse 30, Paul writes that the very reason any, the very reason any believer is in Christ is totally because of God's sovereign work in the believer. And God is the ultimate source of our salvation. And what God does, God wants us to know that He is the reason we came to Christ, the reason that we are in Christ. Christ. God placed us, God put us in Christ, so salvation is His work and His work alone. Then Paul lays out the four provisions that we have in Christ. Remember that? Wisdom, righteousness, holiness, slash sanctification, and redemption. And then in verse 31, Paul writes, therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the, what? The Lord. Boast in the Lord. So God has provided a complete and perfect gracious and supernatural salvation for undeserving sinners. Therefore, there can be no boasting on man's part. And what Paul does, Paul reminds all, all believers, friends, that God alone is worthy of glory and praise. And he reminds all, all believers, that our relationship with God is not motivated by our wisdom, abilities, financial status, status, excuse me, or accomplishments that God chose to extend his saving, loving grace to those he would. Amen? So therefore, let him boast, boast in the Lord. This now brings us to today's uh, text, and the title of my message today is The Central Message. Everyone say that, The Central Message. And friends, here in the text, here in the text, we see Paul's approach to proclaiming the gospel that remained consistent, say consistent, 
consistent regardless of his audience or regardless of his location. Listen, there were certain elements of his approach that never changed. And we would be wise to develop and practice uh, this approach as well. So four points from the text. If you already say yes, number one is this, the message. Write that down, the message. The message. And we're going to look at verse 1 here. Paul writes, when I came to you, brothers. So here Paul is referring to the time when he first came to Corinth. And listen, before there were any Christians in that pagan city, Paul determined to preach the gospel. So let's read that again. When I came to you, brothers, let's read on. I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, speaking of human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. Now, friends, what I love about Paul is that he was a down-to-earth preacher. He didn't use big or impressive words. He didn't try to impress his listeners with philosophical terms. Instead, he spoke a simple message. Say that, simple message. It was the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was centered on the cross of Christ. And by the way, friends, the uh, two of the greatest evangelists, uh, D.L. Moody and Billy Graham, uh, were known for their simplistic messages and not for impressing their audience with eloquent speech. And just like Paul, their messages were centered on the cross of Christ. So when Paul proclaimed the gospel to the Corinthians, he didn't present human reasoning or philosophy and philosophy. Rather, he proclaimed the cross of Christ. He proclaimed it clearly. He proclaimed it accurately. He proclaimed it bluntly, and he told it like it is. Told it simply like it is. He didn't water it down. No, he didn't water it down. He preached and proclaimed the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the, say it, truth. Let's look at the text again. As I proclaim to you the testimony about God. About who? About God. So as Paul proclaimed the gospel, he proclaimed God's message. Got it? God's message, not man's message. In fact, friends, Paul received this message from Jesus Christ himself. Uh, write this down, Galatians chapter 1, Galatians 1, verses 11 through 12. Galatians 1, 11 through 12. Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it, here we go, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Got it? Verse 2. Verse 2, Paul writes, I resolve, means he made a conscious choice to do things a certain way. So I, for I resolve to know nothing while I was with you except, love this, Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul made a conscious choice. And that choice was clear. Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ and him, what? Crucified. That's where Paul started. And that became the center of his preaching. Listen, friends, once, once the center was in place, every other truth could be arranged around that truth. Jesus must be in the middle of all things, the central message of all things, and all things must be properly related to Him. You see, the cross, say the cross, the cross was at the center of Paul's preaching. And I'll tell you why, because the cross says all of man's wisdom, all of man's philosophy, all of man's good works, all of man's achievements cannot bring salvation to him or her. Today, our society 
Our culture still rejects Jesus Christ crucified because the cross still says that a man and a woman, that a man or a woman cannot save themselves by any human effort. Now, if you believe that, say amen. Now, they don't reject Jesus because they think Jesus is crazy. They reject him because they think he might be right. And if he is right and he is, then they're wrong. And if they're wrong and they are, then they have to set aside pride and humbly admit that Jesus Christ is Savior and that he is, in fact, God. God. You see, Paul taught Jesus Christ was very God and Jesus Christ was very man, and he held back no truth on the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we could say that Paul was a man of one message. And if you heard him preach in Thessalonica, Athens, or even in Rome, it was always the same, Jesus Christ and him crucified. He didn't preach Christ, the great teacher, or, or Christ, the great example, or supreme example, or Christ, the martyr, or Christ, the ideal man, or Christ, the great humanitarian, or Christ, the prophet. No, he preached Christ crucified. Paul never, say never, never strayed from his basic message. Someone asked the great preacher Charles Spurgeon why all of his sermons sounded alike. That's simple, he replied. I take my text wherever I can find it, and then I make a beeline for the cross. Love that. Spurgeon and Paul came from the same mold. And you see, the awesome thing about preaching Christ crucified is that it encompasses many doctrines, such as sin, judgment, hell, heaven, substitution, redemption, propitiation, reconciliation, justification, faith, repentance, and salvation. You see, the cross touches every phase of the Christian faith, every phase of Christian living. That's what's so awesome about preaching Christ crucified. Now, let me give you three words to summarize Paul's preaching. You ready? Clarity, simplicity, and boldness. Write that down. Clarity, simplicity, and boldness. One more time. Clarity, simplicity, and boldness. Follow me now. He was so clear that no one could miss his message. He was simple because he spoke plainly about what Jesus Christ accomplished, accomplished in his death and on the cross and was bold, listen how bold, in stating that truth over and over and over again. He was a man of one message. And his heart, Paul's heart, was that after preaching the message of Christ crucified, that it would penetrate and resonate so deep within, listen now, into people's hearts that they wouldn't say, what a wonderful sermon, rather, what a wonderful Savior. Can I get an amen? Paul didn't care. He really didn't care what people thought about him as long as they heard the message of Jesus Christ crucified. Now, there's a lesson, and, and we always have a lesson, right? Here's a lesson. Here's a lesson. Focus on the central message. Write that down. Focus on the central message. Friends, listen, there's a lot of things, a lot of things, a lot of good things to talk to people about, but there is nothing greater to talk about than the cross of Christ. It was God's plan, say God's plan, all along for there to be a single sacrifice for my sins and your sins to bring us to himself. Follow me here. In Isaiah 53.5, Isaiah would predict... But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. 
Paul wrote that this is just what God did when Jesus died for you and I. He paid for our sins, making us right with God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 2 Corinthians 5.21 Paul writes, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness, there it is, of God in him. Colossians 2.14, Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul writes and says this, Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Are you getting it? Are you getting it? There's a lot of good things you can talk to people about, but don't forget the one central message that will save their souls, and that's the cross of Christ. It's the center of Christianity. Now, sadly, today, there are progressive teachings in the church who have tried to take the moral teachings of Christianity and to um, divorce them from the message of the cross. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. And those teachings are pointless and they're powerless because there can be no Christianity without the cross. So, this begs the question, what's so special about the cross? What, 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 makes, this, what, what makes the cross so significant? I'm glad you asked. Three things. Just write these down real quick. Just write them down. Three things. First of all, Jesus Christ bore our sins on that cross. Write that down. Jesus Christ bore our sins on that cross. Jesus Christ bore our sins on that cross. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Our sins are put to his account. Listen, friends, God judged the son, the son as though he were a guilty sinner. In other words, the wrath of a righteous God was poured out on him, the son. So Jesus Christ bore our sins on that cross. The second thing is this, the demands of the law were met on the cross. Write that down. The demands of the law, the demands of the law were met on the cross. That's why it's so special. That's why it's so significant. The demands of the law were met on the cross. You see, God is righteous, right? God is righteous, and in His law is righteous. Therefore, God's law demands righteousness. I want you to follow me here, okay? The law of God demands that any deviation from righteousness receives the just reward of death. But there's good news. Say that, say that. There, there's good news. And the good news is that the just demands of the law, listen now, the just demands of the law were fulfilled on the cross. Write this down, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. Paul writes, And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Verse 14, key, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way. Gosh, I love that. Out of the way, having nailed it, what? To the cross. Now listen, when a criminal was being crucified, it was customary to write his name and the list of his crimes on a tablet. And this tablet would be then, then taken and nailed to a cross, and it would uh, serve as a public warning to others uh, who might be tempted to commit similar crimes. So what's my point? I want you to follow me here. The law of God was a tablet that was the certific certificate excuse me, of our debt. 
And it consisted of our crimes, of all of our crimes. It was a list of our sins. It pronounced our guilt. It declared that you and I were worthy of death. We all, all of us, all of us, listen, had broken the law of God. We all had fallen short of its perfect standard of righteousness. It condemned all of us. But now, someone say, but now, it condemns us no longer. Why? Because it was taken out of the way and nailed to the cross of Christ. Those were the crimes for which Jesus was punished. So it's so special. What's so special and what's so significant about the cross? Well, Jesus Christ bore our sins on that cross. The demands of the law were met on the cross. And the third thing is this, write it down, is the cross was designed to bring us to God. The cross was designed to bring us to God. If you're still with me, say amen. One more time, the cross was designed to bring us to God. I want you to write this down, 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter 3, uh, verse 18, Peter writes, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. There it is, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. You know, a lot of people seem to think that they were looking for God, they were seeking God, they were searching for God, and that they finally found God, came to Him and were saved. Well, guess what? The Bible says something different than that. The Bible says that Jesus Christ died in order that we, listen, that He, that He might bring us to God. Now, if you're saved, say amen. Say amen. Okay, you're saved. Listen, you're saved and you're a Christian because Jesus Christ brought you to God. You weren't seeking God. I wasn't seeking God. He was drawing us, bringing us to himself. Romans 3, write this down. Romans 3, verses 10 through 11. Romans 3, 10 through 11 says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. And this is what Paul writes. There is none who seeks for God. There is none who seeks for God. This means the only reason a person comes to God is because Jesus Christ, on the basis of his work on the cross, moves in that person's life, moves, stirs their heart, and brings them to God. Now listen, church, this is the message that Paul preached in Corinth. Listen, Paul didn't lecture on future events. Paul didn't try to get people to speak in tongues. Uh, he, he didn't campaign against godless government. He proclaimed the message of the cross. That was it. That was it. Now let me give you the gospel in 10 words, okay? The gospel in 10 words. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. There it is. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. That's the gospel in 10 words. And we as the church, as a body of Christ, are to proclaim that gospel. We are to do it. Listen, in our nation, we have 501c3 organizations that operate for the benefit of others, reaching out to those in need. We call these public charities. And that's a good thing. I'm all for that. But it's not given to those organizations to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We have Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, Independents, and they think they have it all figured out. Yeah, right. They don't. They don't. They have their politics. But it's not given to them to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
We have public school systems to educate our children or the children in our nation, but it's not given to the public school system to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Listen, that calling, that calling is given to only one organization on the face of the earth, and that is the body of Christ. Say that, the body of Christ. To his church, and to his church only did God give the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's our message. That's our only message. And we ought to tell it, because no one will if we don't. If you're saved, say amen. Listen, we have to focus on the central message. We have to be, listen now, we have to be gospel-centered in all that we do. Got it? Friends, we have no other message. And if we substitute anything for the message of the cross, we have taken away the one message the world needs to hear. So point number one is the message. Point number two is the manner. Write that down, the manner. The manner. And here we see the manner in which Paul came to proclaim the gospel. Look at verse 3. He writes, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. Now, Paul came to Corinth in physical weakness. That's what the text says. Okay, Remember, he had been physically persecuted in Macedonia just a few weeks before he came to Corinth. He also had some, uh, some kind of physical ailments, 2 Corinthians 12 Verses 7 through 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10 states that. So, so these things only made him totally dependent on God for results. The text says he also came in fear and with what? Much trembling. Listen, Paul was human. He was human. He was overwhelmed by the commission of evangelizing the great pagan city of Corinth. Now, I tend to believe that his fears were allowed by God to humble him, cause him to rest on the Holy Spirit for Results. And as we look at Paul and his ministry, we know that he did in fact, did in fact depend on the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what made him so effective. Now, friends, as we think about Paul, we think about him of him as some great powerhouse for God. But the reality is, he wasn't necessarily an eloquent speaker. And he was probably not much to look at. In fact, a second century description of Paul refers to him as a man small in size, he was short, with a unibrow, a large hook nose, bald head, and bow-legged. His opponents said of him in 2 Corinthians 10, 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive, unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. Go figure. So Paul didn't have it all together. But what, listen, but what he did have was the gospel. Listen, the gospel that gave him the greatest message of all time. He had the message, listen now, of the power of God. And if you're saved, if you're saved, you have the same thing. You may not have a PhD or a seminary degree. You may not be eloquent. You may be nervous about sharing your faith. You may not come across calm, cool, and collected. Okay? But guess what? You do have the greatest message of all time. Got it? The greatest message of all time. Listen, the resources that were available to Paul are also available to you and I. Okay? Got it? Listen, God, listen. God has not changed. His message has not changed. It's still the same gospel that's proclaimed, that's preached, that's shared today. So there's a lesson. 
And here's a lesson. I love this lesson. Is join the club. Write that down. Join the club. I love that. Join the club. Hey, if you feel a bit afraid, uh, unqualified to share the gospel, if, if you sometimes get worried about what people may think, join the club. Join the club. There is plenty of people in that club. I'm, I'm one of them. And guess what? Paul is the president. He's the president. People have often asked me if I get nervous before I preach. And my response is, all the time. All the time, friends, whether behind the pulpit or now behind a video camera, there is always a sense of nervousness in me. And you know what? I, I hope I don't ever lose that. The moment that I lose that is the moment, that's the moment that I'm preaching in my own strength and not in the power of the Holy Spirit. My daddy, who's now with Jesus, he would, uh, every Sunday morning, he would come up to me with the, his styrofoam cup of coffee and he'd say, Mijo, are you ready? I'd say, yeah, I'm ready, Dad, but I'm nervous. He goes, oh, it's good to be nervous, Mijo. Good to be nervous. And I honor that. It is good to be nervous because that reminds me that I'm not doing it in my own strength, but in the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, church, we need holy nervousness when we're sharing and proclaiming the gospel to others, lest we fail God or fail the person to whom we are speaking to. The message, the manner, number three, number three, number three is this, number three is the method. The method, write that down, the method. If you're still with me, say amen. The method, I'm loving this, the method. Look at verse four. Paul writes, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration, love that, of the Spirit's power. Listen, Paul didn't resort to gimmicks to try to win the Corinthians to Jesus Christ. He didn't impress them with big words. He just preached. He just preached. His preaching was a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power, not a performance. Got it? Not a performance. A demonstration means a convincing proof. That's what it means, a convincing proof. So it's through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that people, listen now, that people are convicted of sin and convinced of their need of Jesus Christ. And you see, Paul's method was to rest in the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit to convict and convince men and women to respond to Jesus Christ by faith. His methodology reflects his theology. God sovereignly saves sinners by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. His methodology was Christ-centered, not man-centered. Now, I want to say this. Paul didn't have a fancy evangelistic organization or advertisements on radio, TV, and in billboards. He didn't have internet, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. He came in the power of the Holy Spirit to preach to any and all who receive the message of Christ crucified. Why don't you write this down? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5, if you're getting the same in. Paul writes, For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, get this now, but also with power, say power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. The Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. The message, the manner, the method, and point number four is the motivation. Write that down. The motivation. 
the motivation. The motivation. Verse 5, verse 5. So that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Don't you love that? I love that. So that your faith may not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. And, and I believe Paul rejoiced and, and assured the Corinthians and all believers that their faith and salvation didn't rest, listen now, didn't rest in the wisdom of men. You see, Paul didn't ask them to place their faith in man. Rather, friends, he pointed them to the risen Christ. And through the power of God, they received salvation. You see, Paul's goal, Paul's goal in life wasn't to get people to trust in him, but to trust in God. So that being said, question, who do you trust in? Who do you trust in? Huh? The wisdom of men or the power of God? And if you build on one, you can't have the other. Listen, friends, churches and ministries built primarily on human personality and, and human wisdom won't last. It won't last. Maybe a couple of years, but it won't last more than that. It won't last. Now, I understand, I get this. I understand that we all have our favorite pastors and, and Christian leaders. There's, there's nothing wrong with having spiritual heroes to look to for spiritual leadership. Okay, I get that. But our faith must go beyond our spiritual heroes. We need something deeper, say deeper, than the popularity and wisdom of even the most godly Christian pastors and leaders. We need a faith, say faith, built on the unchanging rock of God's truth. God's truth. Let's look at the text again. Look at the text again. So that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. You know, some of the churches today have gotten away from this basic concept. In this day and age of the church, how many people have their faith based on the wisdom and the understanding of a single man, a pastor or a leader? Huh? I also want to say this. And I want you to hear me. We are so quick to point the finger at the Roman Catholic Church for having raised the Pope on a, on a pedestal, but we are often guilty, often guilty of raising our own pastors and leaders to a pedestal that ought to be reserved for Christ alone. Can I get an amen? Let's go back to the text. That your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's Power. God's power. Okay? Whose power? God's power. So question, what is the power of God? What is the power of God? Well, Paul already answered it. The power of God is seen in the cross. Back to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. Back to chapter 1, verse 18. Paul writes, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Chapter 1, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, verses 23 and 24, Paul writes, We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Listen, friends, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the ultimate manifestation of the power of God. And it was there that sin was conquered. It was there that Satan was defeated. It was there that our redemption was obtained. So there's a lesson. Here's a lesson. Build our lives on Jesus Christ. Build our lives. That's a lesson on Jesus Christ. 
Now, while it's good and okay and important to love and esteem and respect our spiritual leaders, our pastors and, and leaders, friends, we must not build our whole spiritual life around them. We must build our lives on Jesus Christ. He'll still be here after the pastors, all the pastors and leaders have come and gone. Charles Spurgeon wrote this, and it's, it's amazing. He wrote, The power that is in the gospel does not lie in, in eloquence, of the preacher, otherwise men would be the converters of souls. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning, otherwise it would consist of the wisdom of men. We might preach until our tongues rotted, till we would exhaust our lungs and die, but never a soul would be converted unless the Holy Spirit be with the Word of God to give it the power to convert a soul unless the Holy Spirit be with the Word of God to give it the power to convert the soul. This was Paul's approach, and it ought to be ours as well. Listen, friends, we must be faithful to proclaim the gospel to the world. Why? Because the church is the only entity sharing the good news. Hey, it's not a complicated message, really. It's not a complicated message, but it's profound and life-changing. Jesus came to earth, died for sinners, and rose from the dead. And he provided the means of salvation for all who look to him by faith. Now, if you're saved, say amen. If you're saved, say amen. Listen now. May we never be ashamed of the cross. Never be ashamed of the cross, but share it, proclaim it with clarity, simplicity, and boldness as the only hope of the world. Now, I want to close the message with a story. And uh, this is the story of a police officer on night duty in a city in northern England. As he walked the streets, he heard a quivering sob. Shining his flashlight into the darkness, he saw a little boy in the shadows sitting on a doorstep with tears running down his cheeks. The child said, I'm lost. Please take me home. I'll be glad to take you home where you live, the officer replied. But the little boy was so tired and, and so scared that he couldn't remember his address. The policeman began naming street after street, trying to help the boy remember where he lived. He named the shops and, and the hotels and, and the area, but the little boy could give him no clue. Then the police officer remembered that at the center of the town stood a church with a large white cross that towered high above the rest of the city. The policeman pointed to the cross and said, Do you live anywhere near that place? The little boy's face immediately brightened up. He said, Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Take me to the cross, and I can find my way home. You see, that's our mission. We are to point people to the cross, and the cross will lead them safely home to the living God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word today. And my prayer is that we as believers of your kingdom, that we would never, never forget the one central message that will save lost souls, and that's the cross of Christ. That we would never forget we have the greatest message of all time. You have not changed, Lord. Your message has not changed. It's still the same gospel. And so I pray that we would proclaim it with clarity, simplicity, 
and boldness to a dying world who desperately needs you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Listen, perhaps there's some of you that are listening today and you've never invited Christ to come in your life. And as I was preaching, you were feeling something tugging you. That was the Spirit of God calling you to God himself. And if that's you and you want to give your life to Jesus and follow him, I want you to repeat this prayer after me, okay? So bow your heads and close your eyes. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner and I need you and I invite you to come into my life to save me, to cleanse me, and to change me. I confess with my mouth that you are Lord and I believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead. I receive you this day. I am saved, sealed, sanctified, satisfied, justified, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am born again. Thank you, Jesus, for receiving me. From this day forth, I will live for you faithfully until you call me home. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for salvation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, if you said that prayer, if you said that prayer to follow Jesus Christ, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at contact at cryout.org. Again, that's at contact at cryout.org. Listen, I hope you enjoyed the message. I did. I love studying this, this book. It's an amazing book. And I hope you have a blessed week. Love you all. Miss you all. And uh, take care. Bye-bye.